Hello, church. It's good, to, good to see all of you. Yeah, we, we came back and we uh, self-quarantined for about 30 days when we came back. We came back through Qatar rather than South, uh, South Korea because it was getting really bad in South Korea. When we got back here, we did that. And ever since then, we've been just doing it as though our ministry is continuing every day, all day, all the way straight through. And we're just building an ESL uh, Bible site for the Burmese people. It has taken up a massive amount of hours doing it on Moodle. We do it on the, the exact system that they use at Crown and many other major universities. And we already have 35 people pre-registered already. We max out at 50 or we're going to have to increase it way up. And the, the pastor who's going to help to monitor it, every week they have a, a Bible video to watch and they, have, they learn about English. It's preparing them. They don't even know it. They're taking a one-semester course in Bible. And then after that, they'll have the intermediate level going through the book of John and then the advanced going through the book of Romans. So we're very, very excited about that. It's, it's going very well. We also have had some people make some wonderful donations for Bibles. And we're trying to get 15,000 Bibles in there. At this point, it's just, you know, it's, it's in God's hands. So we're waiting to see what he'll do. But, you know, I, I want to tread carefully, but I want to tread not carefully. Um, this is a time when, you know, the Word of God, sometimes people will have to put it, they think that they have to put it aside and make things sound less biblical so they don't insult or hurt people's feelings. But I just want to preach the Bible here, if I can. And a couple of months ago, God put in my heart, to preach verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount and to put, uh, put this then on the radio station in Burma. Uh, we've already got uh, Pastor Andy's uh, uh, series on Hebrews already playing every day. And in the first couple of weeks, we had se almost 700 downloads on, on Sermon Audio from Burmese people in the Burmese language. And we have others listening to the station. So it's going, it's got Christian music. I hand-selected each song, 2,000 of them. And I cast out a lot of songs and kept out just the ones that I knew that were going to be good, had a good Bible message. So um, I, I've been preparing and preaching these sermons on this marvelous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of preachers stay away from it for a number of reasons. One, that, that people actually say this. They say that, hey, if you just follow the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments, you're going to go to heaven. And that has nothing to do with what Jesus is doing here. He is painting a portrait of himself and of the Christian. Now, and I'll go through that and help you. So tonight I'd like to preach on the fifth of the Beatitudes. I've, I'm, I've already started on the first, but since I only have one night to do it, I'm going to uh, preach on the fifth of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 7. Matthew 5, verse 7. If you turn there and just be prepared. Um, considering the current socioeconomic situation, and I'm a trained political economist. That's where I've, I got my, uh, my PhD in and studied at the London School of Economics. And watching this and the racial divisions, the unrest in our country, I believe this is especially appropriate today. Before I begin, I'm going to step out a little bit. I'm going to take a, I'm going to um, put things in a biblical historical perspective, if it's all right with you. You see, mankind is wicked. And Satan is having his time here. Men are selfish, self-centered, violent, fleshly, materialistic, and covetous. Well, you can just look at, at 2 Timothy 3.2 and 1 Corinthians 6.9 and, and also Romans 1.28-32. If you want to have the, the, the Bible's vivid description of the state of man that was ushered in in the fall of man in the garden. It's clear. Now, there have always been some men that have been more ambitious than others. Some in a good way, some in a bad way. The world has always had its pharaohs, it's always had its kings and its tyrants. And those seeking power and wealth through material empires, such as our Rockefellers and Gates. Someone once asked Rockefeller what it takes to make a man happy. 
And he said, just one more dollar. What a sad commentary. There have always been rulers and ruled. Always been rulers and ruled. If any people know about discrimination, it would be Israel and the Jews. First they were enslaved in Egypt. Then they were exiled to Assyrian and Babylonian captivity and their house of God routed and pillaged. And later, Nazi Germany sought to exterminate them. For Nazi Germany, one underlying motive was envy. They envied them because of the Jewish prominence in the economy. Now, with regard to Rome, they, were many, they many times treated their vassals with brutal authority and forcibly ravaged the wealth of these countries, these defeated people, by excessive taxation and reduced many to virtual slavery. Or the Islamic Ottoman Empire, which spread throughout North Africa, Asia, and Europe, bringing slaughter, exploitation, and discrimination against all who refused to convert. And then there were white European colonial powers, which exploited their colonies in Asian Africa for their own self-aggrandizement, their own selfish quest for riches and power. History tells us that the British Empire used what we call to, or they called, gunboat diplomacy to maintain an economic stranglehold on India and other, other colonies, buying cheap cotton grown there and then transporting it by boats to the textile factories in Manchester, England. There it was woven into cloth and sold back to India at a much higher value added, sucking wealth from the country. And when the Indian people tried to weave their own cloth, the British sent their bully boys in with bats and sticks to beat the Indian people and tear down their machines and stop this from happening. Let's not forget how the wealth of the white elite in early America, especially in the agricultural south, was built on the backs of forced African labor. John Newton, who was involved in the abuses of the system, after he had found the Lord, was deeply vexed by what he had done, his own complicity, and he wrote Amazing Grace. We all know that song, beautiful song. Also, there was the coolie labor from China used to build our railroads. And this is where we get our phrase, a Chinaman's chance in hell, as they lowered them over the side with dynamite with a chance that they would blow up, and many did. In the Soviet Union, communist leaders mercilessly oppressed the, the working class, and human rights abuses and poverty in, of communist China are well known. And while the masses suffered oppression and poverty, the communist leaders sated themselves in luxury and privilege especially with contraband Western goods. As we sit here today, while considering the images presented to us of police brutality and mob violence and looting in America, unimaginable atrocities are being perpetrated by the Burmese military on Rohingya Muslims. I heard as many as 10,000 illegitimate babies were being born from the rapes that are happening there in one year. By Chinese authorities on Christians in China, and by drug lords on poor villagers in Mexico. I, I understand that maybe close to 50,000 Christians this year will be martyred for their faith. We can go on and on and on. Clearly, democracy brings these abuses to light and can provide a mechanism to temporarily address the grievances of minorities and have-nots. But there's no hope without God. Even in a country of democracy and free markets, Unless founded on the rock, which is Christ, even this will denigrate once again into rulers and ruled and will eventually utterly fail. As Alex, Alexis de Tocqueville once said in a very often quoted quote, he says, Not until I went into the churches of America and heard the pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great 
because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Now without God, America is ceasing to be good, and we are ceasing to be great. Now without God, America, America needs to be great again, and what they, don't, what they need is they need reform. Is that true? No. They don't need reform. They need Christ. They need Christ. What America needs is a heart change, because it's a heart problem. And until our hearts change, our actions won't change. Envy and selfishness will continue to reign in this country. And we see it here in this country now. Throughout history, rulers have exploited the ruled. In general, the nature of man is depraved, it's wicked, it's rude, it's selfish, and it's merciless. The Bibles tell us that men will wax worse and worse, not better and better. There has not been an improvement, but there's been entropy, a degradation in our society. How can man think that they could solve the sin problem, the sin, the blackness of our souls without God? It's ridiculous to think that we can usher in some man-made utopia, some secular humanist heaven. Really? How well have we done so far? The ideal of social justice without God is a pie in the sky. It's pie in the sky. I'd like to discuss this more, but here we need to indisputably declare the problem, as it has been throughout history. The problem is not race versus race. The problem is not rich versus poor. The problem is not democracy versus totalitarianism. The problem is sin. It's sin. It's that easy. God told us, and we just don't, we don't take it for what it's saying. The current buzzword is systemic discrimination. But this is only a new word for an age-old concept. I'll tell you what, that wherever men can, they will abuse and exploit others for their own riches and purposes. It is the nature of man. There is no other cure for this dark sickness residing in the human heart. No other cure than Christ. Only the Holy Spirit of God can put things right. Only the Holy Spirit of God can make things right. The problem is a heart problem. Lord knows the world needs Christ more than ever now. It is our only hope that some supernatural force, something outside man, the Holy Spirit, will help us. You see, man is the problem. Man is the problem by his very nature. By his very nature. And, and he can never be the solution. And if we're ever going to have an impact on the world, we as Christians must be Christ-like. We must be lights shining like the sun. And the Sermon on the Mount shows us the character, the new nature of the Christian who has a new heart and of Christ. And you know something? This nature must be absolutely astonishing. It has to be paradoxically different. It has to be supernatural to shock the world into questioning their underlying worldview. If not, they won't believe us. So if Christ is the answer, and Christians are the bearers of that light to the world, what do these ambassadors for Christ look like? Let's take a look in the Scripture and see what we should look like. Now, if we take a holistic view of these Beatitudes and the sermon in general, we see Christ presenting us with a kind of test, a litmus test, which if you pass, if you can pass, you know, you can know for certain that the Holy Spirit is working in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. As the Scripture says in Philippians 2.13, another way to look at it is, that Christ is drawing for us a portrait with a divine pen and asking you to peer into the image, the image which is Jesus, 
that, and to see if you indeed have that portrait as your own life. You may not like the conclusion, but you can't reject it without rejecting the spirit of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. It's convicting. It's convicting to me as I read it. And here in the seventh verse of the fifth chapter of Matthew, we have another trait that is a result of being a Christian and will be predictively demonstrated in the Christian character. A Christian will be merciful and he will also obtain mercy. But today we're probably only going to get to the first part that a Christian will be merciful. Now let's read. We're going to read um, verses probably 1 through 7 of chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes... He went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Let's pray. Holy Father God, Lord, sometimes I think we don't really take your word as seriously as we should. We pick it up in the morning. We might read it for devotions, read a psalm or two. But Lord, when we really look into it, we see what, what you demand of us. And Lord, I pray this evening that you might change my heart. You might change the hearts of everybody in here. That we might take your word seriously, God. Look deep within its passages and find truth and meaning in our lives. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Now you see, the gospel is more about attitude than actions. Jesus is more interested in the condition of our hearts than our disposition. You see, you are a Christian before you act like a Christian. I repeat that, you're a Christian before you act like a Christian. The work is not in the hands and feet but the yielding of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. Being a Christian is not something you put on like a new suit and take off when you want, but it's something you have become. So the Beatitudes are a deep and penetrating, and it's stripping us of hypocrisy, and flashing like a neon sign saying, here is the Christian. This is what a Christian is like. And it's begging the question, are you one? Now we turn to the first half of this Beatitude, blessed are the merciful, and let's define and understand the meaning of merciful from Christ's perspective. You know, it's so easy sometimes to get caught up in jargon. People say, I believe in mercy. I believe in love. But they don't really believe it in the same way that God defines it. So as we saw, the world thinks the Christian way of thinking is all foolishness. The Christian's perspective is completely unnatural. But it is, that's part of the beauty of it all. It's divinely crafted. It's not earthy. So we have two words used in a similar way for the word mercy in, in the Old and New Testaments. One is the Hebrew word rakam, and the other is the Greek word eleo. Let's start with rakam and understand this. The Hebrew word for mercy, which is used 44 times in the Old Testament. The first time it's used is in Genesis 43.14. Here it was referring to when Israel, Jacob, grudgingly gave Judah permission to take Benjamin, his beloved youngest son, to see Joseph in Egypt in order to secure the release of their brother Simeon, who was held there. And Israel said, Almighty God give you mercy, Rakam, 
before the man that he may send away your older brother and Benjamin. Here, mercy meant to have pity. To pray this man will have pity on you. And it says in verse 30 that Joseph indeed had mercy, for his bowels did yearn. Here it means to have a tender love. And, and I've read that rakam in Hebrew word that relates to the womb of a mother, where the baby is cherished and nourished and protected. So rakam meant both tender love and compassion, as well as to have pity for, to have a heartfelt desire to bless or help in some way. Nehemiah 9.31 says, Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Rakam. This again is that word, and it shows that mercy means having sympathy and compassion for someone, a desire to help in some way, but even more than this, this pity results in action. You can't look at somebody who's hurt and do nothing and say you're merciful. So God said, because I look at you and have mercy upon you, I will not consume or destroy you. I will never forsake you because of my mercy. Now we turn to the verse we're studying in the New Testament used in Matthew 5.7. Here, merciful is translated as the Greek word eleil. It's important to remember that mercy is a defining trait of God, of Jehovah God, and it's referred to Him many times in the Bible. And praise God for it, considering the fact that we are wicked people and we're disobedient, and it's only by His tender mercies that it keeps us from destruction. His mercy led to the cross of Christ and opened a way for forgiveness. We are told to be like God, to be like Christ, to conform ourselves to Him. For example, in verse 38 to 45, we are told to be merciful, to forgive, to bear wrong without anger, to be kind and generous, to love our enemies. And then Jesus gives the reasons why we should do all this. Here's the reason. That ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. In verse 48 it says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. So this is all about becoming Christ-like, becoming godly. The Greek word aleo is used 31 times in the New Testament. And it is the word invariably used by any of those people asking for the, the mercy of Christ. And, and for example, they would say, please have mercy on us. Please have eleo on us, Christ. In Luke 17, 13, the ten lepers lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They weren't just asking him to look on him and say, oh, I feel so sorry for you. They were asking for him to heal them. In Luke 16, 24, the rich man being in hell, he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send and send to do something, Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this place. Used in these contexts, the words means to have mercy on, to help the afflicted, to those seeking aid, to bring help to the wretched. There is no greater mercy than to bring the gospel to a sinner who would otherwise burn eternally in a devil's hell. There is no food, no medical supplies, no money, no gifts, although these are all merciful and commanded by God. None can compare to the show of mercy to the eternal salvation of a soul. Jesus came primarily to seek and to save that which was lost. In Luke 15, 7, we hear of heaven's great joy. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. 
And in his first public sermon in Luke 4.18, Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. So clearly mercy implies not only a heartfelt pity or compassion, but the desire to help and aid to relieve them from their miserable situation. And for the world, the greatest mercy is to bring the words of grace and the mercy of God to a lost and dying world. Before we go on, I think it's important to know what mercy in the Christian sense is not. It's not just a feeling. If the feeling is genuine, it will lead to action to relieve the distress. It's not just being tolerant. It's not being tolerant. It isn't permitting breaking the law. For example, allowing a thief to go free after robbing someone's house is not mercy. It's permissiveness. It's lawlessness. You see, it's not just, you see, not punishing a child might be completely merciful. And not punishing them might be completely unmerciful, excuse me, because they might repeat it again and hurt themselves and someone else later in life. Remember, mercy is used in the Bible to define one of God's traits. And with God, there are always repercussions for our actions. You will reap what you sow. And remember, mercy always starts with a perception and then moves to an action. Now, we need to compare mercy and grace. There are a number of trite and clever Christian sayings that have been coined with their simplicity and that can be quite misleading and used in the improper context can be unbiblical. For example, you hear the, the, the saying, once saved, always saved which is often misused to imply liberty to sin after salvation. And another, grace is giving you something you don't deserve, while mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. Sounds good, but on further examination we see that grace and mercy are two parts of the same process. God, who is merciful, grants us grace. In the case of salvation, His mercy, His pity on us, on our rebellious, fleshly, God-hating character, does not even deter God from offering us grace. His pity, His mercy, leads to action. What was that action? Sending His Son, His only begotten Son, to die in our place that we might be forgiven. Mercy led to grace. Mercy is a sense of pity for suffering and a compelling, repeat that, and a compelling to action to relieve it. It's an inward sympathy resulting in an outward action in relation to sorrow and suffering of others. Now we'll outline what I refer to as the elements of mercy. The first is the origin of mercy. Where does mercy come from? Well, clearly, God is the origin of all mercy. God is merciful and we were made in God's image. Dogs and cats and other animals aren't merciful. But we're made in His image. And we are only in that way. And that's why even the most, the, some unsaved people carry with them a distorted or truncated version of mercy. One that's earthbound. And it's the same with love and justice and any of God's attributes. People also, unsaved people, will reflect those in an unsaved man, but they're distorted by sin. The object of God's mercy has always been preeminently about sin and its devastating effect on mankind. The entire story of the Bible is a mercy letter sent by God to us. God was merciful in the most definitive way. While we were yet blaspheming, disobedient, ungodly, idolaters and fornicators, and such were some of you, who rejected His authority in our lives, He offered us healing 
and forgiveness and a way back to Him. And we had only to do with the one thing that had no merit, the one thing that had no merit at all, only to realize that we have no other choice and believe. There's no merit to believing. It's something we do because we are desperate. God is the origin of all mercy, specifically true mercy, the mercy of the God-man Jesus. We should never forget that all mercy comes from God, and we have no place to take credit for something that isn't our creation. Next is the preparation for mercy. This is the preparation of the heart of those that precedes mercy. I'm sure you've heard the stories of wife beaters and drunks and criminals and heartless landowners who, after coming to faith in Christ, became wonderfully merciful. In Luke 19, 1-10, we read of Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector who mercilessly defrauded the poor and collected taxes, not only for the Romans, for his own money, for his own riches. But after he met Jesus, what did he say? Overwhelmed with love for the Savior, he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. So there is a preparation by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men before mercy. The preparation for mercy in the Christian sense starts in poverty of spirit. That is the first beatitude. And eventually prepares the heart to be merciful as Christ is merciful. And it is perfected in a process throughout our lives. The Christian is filled with thankfulness for the mercy given them. How can this mercy not spill out of our grateful hearts? How can they not forgive as they were forgiven? How can we not? And then there's the new world view of mercy. A saved person becomes a new creature, and all things become new. Our entire world view changes, including our view of men. The other day, my wife and I were talking about a man who was bitter and had publicly humiliated her friend. The world's reaction? Disdain, anger, hatred, revenge. But my wife said, I feel sorry for that man. He must be carrying a terribly heavy burden. You see, Christians have a new perception, a new view of people, and we become merciful as Christ was merciful to us. On the cross, being taunted and tortured, hanging naked in disrepute, did he revile back? Did he threaten them with destruction? In 1 Peter 2.23, the Bible says of Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And his words to them were spoken with rivers of mercy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Acts 7, when Stephen preached Christ to an angry Jewish mob, they railed on him and gnashed on him with their teeth. They took up stones and stoned him. And during the violence, his stones pelted at him, hit his mortal body by these unbelieving men. He knelt on his knees, and he cried out in mercy, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. In other words, God, they're ignorant and don't find them guilty of this charge. The world would say, I'll go get my gun, and I'll come back and kill those wicked men. But Stephen prayed for them. He forgave them. He had mercy, and that mercy compelled him to ask that the Father not punish him, punish them, not to lay the sin to their charge. See, as a Christian with a new worldview, we will be compelled to have compassion on lost people steeped in their misery. 
self-destructive drug addicts and alcoholics, the violent and unlikable, those who reject our offer of the gospel and spit in our faces, people who gossip about us and do incomprehensibly cruel things to us, even those who claim the name of Christ. We must teach the ignorant and pray God's mercy on them, bless and pray for them that hate us, just as our Father did and He does for us now. This is almost ludicrous to the natural human mind. It sounds so almost foolish, so non-human. My friend, that's because it is. It's divine. No man ever spake like Christ. It is the evidence of his divinity. And then we have the obligation of Christian mercy. Now we come to the obligation of Christian mercy. We're talking about here, it's not just thing you're, something you're forced to do, not something you do while under protest, but something that is compelled out of the mercy you feel in your new heart the mercy you've been given from God. In other words, when, you, when your heart feels Christian mercy, your heart feels obligated to do with a willing heart to help people with joy. You, you absolutely must help people. You can't hold back. Your heart compels you to. The Holy Spirit puts it in your heart, and you won't be satisfied until you do something to help them. Most everyone is familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Here a lawyer asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus asked, what's written in the law? And the lawyer quotes the Jewish Shema, to love God. And he adds, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus commends the lawyer for his correct answer. And the lawyer, attempting to justify himself, asks Jesus then, who's my neighbor? So again, Jesus has already commended him for his answer to the question of how to inherit eternal life, how to be saved. You must love God and love your neighbor. Jesus then gives the story of a man who went down to Jericho and was robbed, stripped, and beaten by thieves who, who they left wounded and half dead. He was critically wounded, badly hurt. And we remember that a priest came by, a priest from the Aaronic priesthood, and passed by him on the other side. He showed no mercy, no desire to help his neighbor. And then a Levite from the respected Jewish religious tribe who came, looked on him, and then passed by. So here we have two religious men. They saw the man in distress, and their bowels of mercy were not engaged. The first priest showed the least care and walked on the other side. The Levite did come and look on him, but in his curiosity there was no mercy. He may have been stricken momentarily by the plight of the man, but he didn't demonstrate rakam or, or eleo. He was not moved to action. So then came a Samaritan. The Samaritans were a people who were utterly despised by the Jews. Jews were to have absolutely no contact with them or dealings with them. They were anathema, or cursed. And here we see a completely different reaction from the Samaritan man to the wounded man. The Bible says, first he came. This was just like the Levite, but it didn't stop there. The Bible says when he saw him and had compassion on him, his perspective was so different from that of the priest and of the Levite. He cared. His feelings were stirred. His feelings were stirred. The Bible then says he went to him, not just to gawk at him and look at him, but to succor him as a mother to a child. And he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast. Why they put own beast in there, I think was for a reason. And brought him to the inn and took care of him. We see two things of note there. First, his compassion led to action. And not only action, but personal involvement. He didn't send a check. He got down, and what did he do? He personally bound up his wounds. He poured in medicine, picked up this man, 
who was beaten and bloody and dirty and a stranger and put him on his own beast. The Bible says his own beast. He didn't even regard things as, as his own, but put them to use for the stranger. And he took care of him. In other words, nursed him with tender care. And finally, he took him to an inn and paid the innkeeper and charged him to further take care of him and offered to pay all the costs. You know, when listening to that story, it is almost impossible not to see the parallels with Jesus in this story. Like the Samaritan, Christ had compassion on the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd. And like the Samaritan, he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was moved to weep for the sin of Jerusalem. And for Lazarus, who died because of death and sadness that plagues the world as a result of sin. Like the Samaritan, he touched and healed and fed even the untouchable and outcast. He was an outcast himself, just like the Samaritan. And like the Samaritan, he, for the joy, was compelled to shed his mercy on us in action by giving himself for us, pouring out everything that he was for us, shedding the precious treasure of his blood to atone for our sins and to destroy death and the grave so we could have hope in a hopeless world. And as the Samaritan who left the innkeeper with the charge to take care of the wounded man until his return, Jesus left us with the Holy Spirit of God to be with us, to teach us, to guide us as he himself pleads for us in the courts of heaven. And he will come again. And he will come again. And he will reward the merciful, his children, for they, obtain, they will obtain mercy. What Christ was defining here or clarifying was the attitude and behavior of a truly godly person, a Christian. This was the spirit of the law, which in their hard hearts they missed or rejected. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Next are the two facets of Christian mercy. Christian mercy, there's two facets that are inextricably linked. You can't pull them apart. And the two are physical mercy and spiritual mercy. This is exemplified by Christ in his ministry. The record of his miracles is dominated. It's dominated by healings. Whether they be from blindness, deafness, paralytics, sickness, leprosy, raising people from the dead, approximately 75% of the 40 miracles of Jesus recorded were performed to address physical needs of people, including feeding massive numbers of people with meals that should only feed a few. Jesus cared for our infirmities and had compassion on the suffering and needs of people in this life. And these only, these are only the ones that were recorded. Matthew 4.24 tells us that his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken in diverse diseases and torments, and he healed them all. John tells us that if all the works of Christ were written down, the world could not contain the books. It is likely that Jesus ministered to the physical needs, healing and feeding hundreds of thousands of people. But these mercy miracles were all for a purpose. This is for that. These were for signs. To convince them that he was the Son of God so he could be, they could believe and be healed of the curse of sin. It was for a purpose. Jesus came preeminently to seek and to save that which was lost. That was the reason for his life and ministry and his miracles. In Matthew 9, 6 it says, But that ye may know that the Son of God, the Son of Man, hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then he saith unto the sick, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house, that ye may know. In Matthew 9, 36, he had compassion and mercy on multitudes, not only because they were weak, because they were sheep needing a shepherd. And he taught them. In the same way, we must be merciful. God commands us to care for the poor and the fatherless and the widow. 
And mercy demands us being moved to aid in relieving pain and suffering in this world. To speak out for injustice. But if it stops there, it's not Christian mercy. And it will only last a short time in this ephemeral life. We cannot forget the preeminent mercy. Christians will have mercy on the souls of men. And yearn to bring the healing power of the gospel to a broken world. This is the true mercy. So we cannot disconnect these two essential facets, physical and spiritual, because Christ did it. They were connected by Him. Sometimes the mercy begins with relieving the earthly suffering. I remember there's a story of a man, a Pentecostal man, preaching in India, and a very poor man, to hundreds of thousands. He was in the very back, and he raised his hand. He said, yes, sir. He said, if you'll feed me, I'll listen to your gospel. If you'll feed me. Sometimes the mercy begins with relieving the earthly suffering, but it doesn't end there. We then feed them with the bread of life, which is the eternal mercy. Last is the caution of mercy. If those who show mercy obtain mercy, do we know what happens to those who do not show mercy? Well, the Lord gives us clear guidance in Matthew 18, in the parable of the unmerciful servant, and again in Matthew 25, and finally in the Sermon on the Mount itself. Well, the Lord, in the parable of the unmerciful servant, he tells us the story of a servant who owed his master a large sum of money. And it was commanded that the servant be sold with his family to pay for the debt. He begged for mercy, and the master forgave his debt. But this same servant had someone else that owed him a tidy sum, and he did not show mercy, but had him cast into prison. When the master heard, he was angry at the unmerciful servant, and he delivered the servant to the judge and to the jail. In verse 35, the Bible says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So he, the unmerciful servant, was unmerciful as a result, received no mercy. As Adam Clark says of the immersiful, O monster of ingratitude, scandal to human nature and reproach to God. If you can hide, hide thyself even in hell from the face of the Lord. The absence of mercy in a person can make that man incapable of the pardon of God. In Matthew 25, sometimes referred to as the parable of final judgment, here we find the most scathing and frightening diatribe against the unmerciful. In the end times, how will we know whether we're a sheep or a goat? Well, we know because of our profession of faith in Christ. But what other things, how can we know that we've professed faith in Christ? Is there an, a, a response and action from us? Do we bear fruit from it? Well, here's what the Bible says. The Lord Jesus says to the wicked, You showed no mercy to my followers. You refused to feed them. You refused to clothe them. You refused to help them in their difficult circumstances. And when you refused mercy to them, you refused mercy to me. Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. As one Martin Lloyd-Jones warns, if I am not merciful, there is only one explanation. I have never understood the grace and mercy of God. I am outside of Christ, I am yet in my sins, and I am also unforgiven. Finally, in chapter 6 of Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a dire warning when he says, but if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So the warning is this, it's clear. If you harbor hatred and unforgiveness and are unmerciful to others, how can you possibly expect God to offer his mercy and grace and forgiveness to you? How can you? In conclusion, the only hope for lasting justice in this country and in the world in general is God. 
Acts 17.26 says, God hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God. You see, we are all of one blood. We are all the family of man. The only thing that separates us, that separates mankind in God's eyes, is whether you're still dead in your sins, or if you are living and walking in the newness of life in Christ. And when you're born again, you're adopted into the family of God, regardless of nation, kindred, people, or tongue. The saints will all stand before the throne of God, singing a new song. And I look forward to that day. So Christian, your job is, you're an adoption agency. That's what your job is, to be an adoption agency. You're here to work God's mercy to man, to offer adoption to all men and women so that they might be born again and be able to cry, Abba, Father, and be free from the curse of sin. A true Christian will demonstrate God's mercy to those in physical need and will reach out to them and help those who are fallen. But we must never forget the ultimate mercy, the ultimate love, which is the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If after this self-examination, or that I've gone through myself also through this, this sermon, if after this self-examination, you find that you have no mercy. You find that you have no care for the suffering of the world. You're not piqued or upset by injustice. No burning desire to, to drive you to action and tell them about Christ. Then the only explanation can be that you've never received His mercy and grace. And you're still lost in your sins. And for those who reject Christ, there is no mercy. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall under the hands of of the living God. And the Bible says you are God's enemy. And the Bible says there is no more hope, only a fearful, certain fearful looking of judgment and fiery indignation. If you have never called on the mercies of God to save you, a merciful God who is not willing that any should perish is willing to save you. He sent His only begotten Son, who in His mercy was brutally mocked and tortured for your sin in your place. To receive the grace of God, you must understand that you are a sinner and in need of mercy. And then, not because of any works that you have done, you will receive grace, marvelous and wonderful, healing and forgiveness from sin. And in His mercy, in His mercy, He will accept you and adopt you into His family and fill you with His Spirit. You need to call on Jesus. Just call out His name and tell Him, I'm a sinner and I need you, God. Call on Him today before it's too late. Let's pray.